0: Today on The Daily Scoop podcast from The Scoop News Group, thoughts on national cybersecurity defense from Capitol Hill, and pulling together federal cyber policy. It's Tuesday, April 25th, 2023. Welcome to The Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of The Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Defense Tech Week is just around the corner. Hosted by Defense Scoop, Defense Tech Week is the nation's premier week-long festival dedicated to technology's critical role in the future of modern U.S. defense and national security. The lineup includes community-driven events featuring leaders in defense, technology, and academia. It all begins May 8th, and it's happening across D.C. You'll also be able to enjoy plenty of sessions virtually if you can't be there in person. Learn more at defensetechweek.com. Jeff Rothblum is a senior professional staff member for the U.S. Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee and Kara Mumford is the Majority Subcommittee Director for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Protection Subcommittee on the House Homeland Security Committee. In this highlight from the CrowdStrike Government Summit, Mumford explains how our organization is monitoring national cybersecurity defense.
1: In Congress, we have an oversight function, which means we, we ask a lot of questions, we talk to executive branch agencies, we talk to stakeholders. And we try to identify gaps. We try to identify problems. We try to d- identify, you know, where agencies are doing well, um, and then we, you know, put in uh, guardrails where we think it's appropriate on certain authorities. And where we identify gaps, we'll, you know, say, okay, you actually do need this new authority, and so then we'll write a law, it's a literal act of Congress, um, and then hopefully make things a little bit better for agencies. I think. One thing that we really try to do a good job of in our roles is um, actively, proactively engaging with the agencies to, um, you know, to work with them and make them feel like we're a partner to them rather than, you know, someone who's coming in to to yell at them. Um, we'll ask a lot of really hard questions, but at the end of the day, the questions are all meant to, you know, move the ball in cybersecurity forward. Um, I think, you know, as it relates to federal cybersecurity in particular. That's where congressional jurisdiction comes into play. Um, So on my subcommittee, we have jurisdiction over uh, CISA um, and DHS, which is fairly narrow, as you all know, when it comes to cybersecurity in the government. Um, And so we do our best to kind of work with CISA and make sure that they have the resources and authorities that they need. Um, And then speaking of resources, Congress also has uh, money, which uh, is very important to everyone. Um, Jeff and I are not the appropriators, so we don't actually get to make decisions about, you know, spend money here, spend money there, don't spend any money there. Um, but we, uh, you know, we're the ones who kind of look at the authorities and make sure that those authorities are matched to resources.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think the only thing I would add is that often, I think the most analogous way I can compare it to sort of things in the private sector is that Congress. Um, it's kind of like a board of directors. Um, and so, you know, there's that oversight function. Are you are you heading in the right strategic direction? Um, are you taking sort of the right big muscle movements in terms of the direction that we think we should be going? Um, but we're not necessarily there to, to manage or to judge sort of like normal day-to-day sort of operations. Um, you know, as Kara was talking about in terms of authorizations, which is where we focus on, um, you can kind of think of it as like a set of permissions. And sometimes those permissions are fairly broad. Uh, you know, hey, CISA, do information sharing to critical infrastructure. Okay, that that can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different ways and we've given deference to the executive branch to do that and to be able to evolve that over time and do that in the best way possible. And then we do oversight to sort of like better understand what they're doing day to day. Sometimes those authorities are really narrow and much more specific. Um, That tends to be the case when we're talking about anything that's like a mandate, right? If it's a voluntary thing, we can kind of give you a big broad, hey, voluntarily work with the private sector and give them information. But um, many of you may be aware of the recent law that both of us worked on last Congress on reporting uh, significant incidents that occur at critical infrastructure into the government. That was a much more narrow, Uh, sort of authority with lots of rules and lots of guidelines around what that can and can't be in order to not let the agency sort of run wild and do anything broadly, we really, in order to get broad support across Congress, needed to narrowly tailor that to say, you know, you can't require reporting within less than 72 hours, and you have to use the information in certain ways, and lots of information protection. Um, And so the authorities that we grant, can be sort of different um, based on certain situation and based on the type of thing. But all of that sort of couched under this big picture strategic, what are the directions that we think agencies should go? What is the direction that we think the US government broadly should be going when it comes to cybersecurity?
3: Great, great, thank you. Um, so we, ha- we had um, a lot of our keynote speakers this morning reference the extent to which cybersecurity is a, is a team sport. Obviously, that's a, a refrain that we've heard for a long period of time. Um, and it's true here as well. So on the stage, obviously, we have representation from uh, both you know parties, or at least we work for folks of both parties, um, both House and Senate, um, and then even some sort of different jurisdictions and things like that, based on how the different chambers of Congress have divided lines about what your roles and missions will be. So, um, can you give us a sense of how how like law and policy works in you know in in, in that context. So, like how do you work across those like those various divides um, to ensure that you're you know able to help improve um, cybersecurity posture for the nation and for the federal government?
2: Yeah, I could start. So um, you know each chamber has their own different committees. and as Rob alluded to, the committees uh, have different jurisdiction, basically, sort of the scope of stuff that that committee has been assigned within a policy space. Uh, My committee has fairly broad jurisdiction. We have all of uh, DHS cyber, so CISA and some of the other uh, components that do cybersecurity work. But we also own OMB and all sort of the federal cybersecurity policy. So it's broader than Keras, for example. And so when we write legislation, we always have to think about jurisdiction because, the, the chairperson of the committee uh, and the ranking member of the committee, sort of the minority party, basically get to control a lot of the policy that moves through that particular committee and how it's written and what sort of the focus areas are. It's sort of the deference to that particular chairperson's uh, you know, kind of policy views. And so you might have a policy goal that says, let's have significant cybersecurity incidents be reported to the government. And that's gonna look a lot different in terms of the specifics of how that gets done in law and in policy were it to go through my committee compared to, say, the Judiciary Committee, which is focused a lot more on sort of the DOD, I'm sorry, DOJ and law enforcement equities. And so, um, you know, most of the writing of the text of these bills occurs sort of at the committee level, and then there's sort of tweaks made to get the other committees and the other members on board once you've made it through that process. And so, when we're writing legislation, we're always conscious of what committees it's gonna touch what committees in the house it's going to touch, what is important to those other committees. And so that's why you'll often see laws that might awkwardly leave a committee out or might awkwardly leave an agency out. And you might say, well, why in the world would you only give this to DHS and D- DOD and not, say, to DOJ? And there might be policy reasons for that, but there might also just be, well, we're pretty sure that, the, in this random hypothetical, that the Judiciary Committee might not agree with this as much. And so we're just not going to put the Attorney General in the law, and then they get less of a say, right? So there's sort of this balance of how do you get the right policy um, while also making sure you gain the right support through Congress to be able to get something done.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean I think it's pretty similar to how it works in the executive branch too, right? I mean, like DOJ will come at an issue differently than DHS will come at an issue. And so we have that same kind of back and forth um, in Congress because ultimately we're there to kind of, we're there to protect our agencies that we oversee, right? We're there to advocate for their best interests. Um, And then the other thing that I wanted to say is that cyber is very much a bipartisan issue. There's not a lot of light between the two of us and how we uh, think about issues. At the end of the day, we you know, we all have the same goal and it's to raise the level of cybersecurity. And, um, you know, there might be slightly different approaches to how we kind of come at that, but we are always able to work through, um, for the most part, you know, these really, really thorny issues. And I think um, it's one of the few issues where I feel pretty comfortable saying that, that we can kind of take something that's really hard and really challenging and work through, um, you know, some of the uh, pitfalls that other committees and other agencies, you know, might fall into.
2: Yeah. it's. I was having a conversation recently with a friend of mine and I said, Congress is a really weird place because at most companies or most places you work, Everyone at least has the same goal, right? And the, the, you know, the CEO or the board, whoever it is, sort of sets a goal, and and, and everyone's working towards that. And there might be disputes between the different compartments or different agent, you know, different departments about how to get there, um, but it's sort of a unified idea. And Congress, in a lot of topics, is not that way, right? We can all think of topics where where the goals of members are diametrically opposed, right? Like like not able to exist uh, in you know you know in in, in comedy. And, and yeah, to Kara's point, I think cyber, no one wants to get hacked, period, and stop, right? Like there is no member of Congress who says, I think it would be great for the United States government or critical infrastructure to get owned. Um, and so because we all have that common goal, and that sort of like very unequivocal common goal, it's much more easy for us to be able to get things done and to be able to work together, even members who might be very, very different on the political scale and, and come from issues from very, very different perspectives. Um, we'll often make very interesting bedfellows when it comes to cybersecurity and we'll work together um, really well on, on this sort of scope. Great.
3: Great, thank you. So, um, we'll move to a couple rapid-fire ones, if that's okay. And, Kara, uh, I'd like to start with you for this. So, how do you evaluate at any given time what policy areas you, you'll start to work on? Because for some people, even people who are in the space, there may be, you know, 5 or 10 or, or 20 things um, that, that like might seem to the outsider like it's a, an appropriate topic to try and legislate on or do oversight on. Um, so how do you think about that?
1: Um, it's really hard. Uh, it is especially where there's just so many things that we could focus on at any given time. Um, a lot of what happens, at least for me, is sometimes it's member driven. Sometimes, you know, your boss is like, I really want to work on the workforce issues. So you're like, OK, like, I guess I'm working on the workforce issue now. Um, sometimes it's, uh, it's just current events driven, right? So like you have solar winds, you have Colonial Pipeline, and then all of a sudden we're springing into action, organizing a hearing, trying to draft legislation, you know, writing letters, whatever it may be. Um, and so it really just kind of depends on, um, you know, whatever the circumstances is that you're presented with. But one thing that I, I try to do, especially because some of these issues are, so, I mean, just so massive, right? Like I mentioned workforce you can't just tackle workforce like that's impossible and so part of what we have to do is trying to figure out okay what is the best first step here like what should we focus on first that is a bite-sized reasonable piece that we can actually you know fix or make better and then from there we can kind of build into this like snowball effect of like now we're actually moving the needle but i mean there's there's nothing that either Jeff or I can do to like fundamentally change the cyber workforce issue with one bill. Like that's just not going to happen. And I think that that's the same for a lot of issues in cybersecurity. It's not just the workforce thing. So it can be hard to kind of prioritize. Um, But, you know, since we do work for uh, for members of Congress, a lot of what um, we end up doing comes from them, whether it's from a, you know, they had a really interesting conversation with the constituent and they've, you know, now they want us to work on it, or they had a conversation with the CEO of a company, or they had a conversation. they you know, and over the course of the hearing, you know, they get a, um, a really interesting piece of feedback from an agency. So there's a lot of different avenues that we can take to kind of like identify issues, but um, yeah, it's it's not that easy.
3: <laughs> Indeed. yeah, And this is actually a good segue to a question that I want to uh, toss to Jeff. So Jeff, how how much time uh, in a given day, If you're thinking about working on a new issue, how much are you talking with other congressional staff versus maybe subject matter experts who have been brought in from the executive versus folks from industry or think tanks or academia or elsewhere? And how do you think about, you know, integrating their views to inform like how you approach an issue?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think the answer is um, like all of the above. Like I wish I had more hours in a day. Um, I mean, one of the things that um, I started in Congress about five years ago. One of the things that's still like occasionally like hits me is that you know, we're writing law, right? Like we are writing law that, that presides over 300 plus million Americans and often has international impacts. And so you know it's, it, it really behooves us as staff and as members of Congress to ensure that we, to the best of our ability, really understand these issues um, as well as we can in terms of the policy implications of them. And so we absolutely talk with the executive branch on a very regular basis, oftentimes just to ask them, what is possible, right? Like, if we told you to do this, could you do it? Or will you fail? Or what sort of resources might you need to do it? Or what you know, additional steps would you need to take before you can get to this end state that we think we want to go to, right? So there's a, a very practical relationship that occurs there. And, and to Kara's point earlier about oversight, that's often why we ask a lot of hard questions. Even if it's not for a specific bill, it's to really understand what the challenges agencies are facing so we can try and help them uh, you know, overcome those. At the same time, um, the private sector is clearly moving far faster and more aggressively. Uh, innovating and and developing uh, large swaths of this sector in terms of what what the capabilities are, what sort of the next state of the art is. um, And and it's really important for us to know what that is. You know, there's always going to be a lag when it comes to government, um, but our goal I think oftentimes is to try and limit the lag, right, and to appropriately sort of make sure that that we can keep up and that we're at least aware of and understanding where things are going, uh, because we don't want the government to just be the government, right, and sort of that colloquial like, oh, good enough for government. Um, we really do want the, the agencies to be able to push forward, and, and I think we've been really happy with some of the things they 've done recently in terms of you know, pushing out VDP policy for every single agency um, is something that you know not every company has, and it's sort of like one tiny little thing where I can say we're, we're maybe a little bit ahead of average um, in certain areas. and so we talk to private sector all the time, and then you know the, the third kind of group is you know civil society, nonprofits, academia, you know people who Are maybe not financially motivated to talk to us because as much as we get honest good thoughtful views from industry and i'm not saying we don't like there is obviously a reason why industry is generally talking to us there's some financial impetus to that Um, and and there are other groups where that's not the case and they just have different views and so we're trying to understand those broader perspectives Um, one of the things that for me at least in my job i often rely on those groups to raise for us is issues around privacy civil rights civil liberties and some of those things that um you know academia and nonprofit sectors really can focus on and really dive into in ways that other groups that we talk to just don't always necessarily do in the same way and that's just a really important input and viewpoint that we can get from them in terms of when we're crafting legislation how do we balance sort of all of those different facets
0: you can learn more about the national cybersecurity strategy at the daily scoop podcast.com coming on thursday's episode of the daily scoop podcast to look at the government accountability office's high risk list GAO's Managing Director for Strategic Issues, Michelle Sager, joins me to discuss what's new to the list this year and how federal agencies are managing these risks. That show debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your podcasts. As you've heard on this podcast, April is National Supply Chain Integrity Month. It's a partnership between the National Counterintelligence and Security Center and partners across government and industry to raise awareness on the issue. Camille stewart Gloucester is Deputy National Cyber Director for Technology and Ecosystem Security at the White House. And at the CrowdStrike Government Summit, sewer Gloucester told CrowdStrike's Drew Bagley about her organization's mission.
4: ONCD is organized to be the entity that pulls together federal cyber policy around an affirmative vision. One that we can all buy into, right? We'd like a secure, resilient, equitable digital ecosystem that we all can thrive in. So how do we work together? How do we leverage all of our authorities to move towards that goal? We promote federal coherence. How do we get the federal house in order? How do we leverage all of the authorities we have and get folks marching to the same set of priorities so that we're as effective and efficient as we can be? How do we align our resources to our aspirations? No more unfunded mandates. How do we get the money to match the things that we are trying to do? Public-private partnerships. How do we pull together the private sector, the public sector, our international allies around a collaborative um, conversation and, and set of outcomes that allow us to meet the goals that we have? And then how do we drive towards Present and future resilience. And a lot of the work that happens in my team is focused on that future resilience piece.
5: So, sp- speaking of uh, resiliency, you recently, um, I'm sure you're still not catching up on sleep, but you definitely lost a lot of sleep working on the National Cybersecurity Strategy. And the National Cybersecurity Strategy sets forth this holistic vision for cybersecurity, um, not only in the federal government, but also with critical infrastructure. And one of the focuses that I think is important to discuss, especially this month as it's um, Supply Chain Integrity Awareness Month, is the cybersecurity of supply chains. And so part of what the cybersecurity strategy laid out focused on the need to support uh, supply chain security in information technology, advanced manufacturing, semiconductors, telecommunications as well as something that's been discussed a little bit today, software supply chains. Could you elaborate a bit on how continued investment um, can really drive security in these realms?
4: Yeah, I'm gonna assume all of you read the National Cybersecurity Strategy, because that will make me feel better about the sleepless nights. I did. Um, good, <laughs> even if it's just you and I. But across all of the pillars in the strategy, whether it's critical infrastructure or shifting market forces or future resilience or You know, international collaboration, supply chain security is integral and a fundamental component of that. We are thinking about how do we make sure all of the component parts that make up the digital infrastructure that we have, all the investments that we're making, um, are secure, and that we build out a resilient ecosystem, one that is defensible, one that has the transparency necessary for us all to be able to identify when there is an issue. And so, Supply chain security you'll see is a theme across the entire strategy from software all the way to hardware. Um, Because as we think about supply chains, we wanna go to the most elemental unit. We wanna start at the beginning, and that allows us to really think about how that broadens out into the infrastructure and into market forces and all of that. So we are heavily investing in supply chain
5: thank you um yeah that's very broad now w- within that universe um what are the short-term priorities and then the long-term priorities of your office and the administration as a whole because there's a, there's a lot you just listed yeah. a lot you could address
4: so for supply chain security we're really thinking about three priorities at the moment first is how do we harmonize all the supply chain risk management authorities we have across the federal government The federal ecosystem has a lot of really important authorities, CFIUS, Team Telecom, a whole list of others. How do we make sure that we are moving to a common set of priorities, that we're leveraging those authorities um, in the current landscape, not just in the way that they were drafted and intended? How are we thinking about how they show up in this ecosystem and in the, the threat landscape that we're seeing now? Second would be, federal um, acquisitions. You saw the FY23 budget had a lot of money dedicated to supply chain security. The same will be true for FY24, and we imagine that FY25's um, budget priorities will, will be the same. And then the third is global supply chains. Supply chains do not only happen here in, the, in America. They are global in nature. And so how are we working with our allies? How are we working with the private sector? How are we collaboratively thinking about what, how we need to change the ecosystem and the environment to allow for the transparency that breeds the resilience that we need? And so there will be a lot of collaboration on a global scale to drive forward supply chain security.
5: Now, um, when, I was, uh, when, I, when I was introducing you and saying your title, your title has very broad words in it. You have technology, and then you have ecosystem. So as part of that, one of the things we've seen as a community that's challenging is when we're dealing with vulnerabilities in open source software. So what are you thinking about to address that?
4: Yeah, open source software is one of our um, first and biggest implementations of supply chain security. Um, after Log4 Shell, the White House convened a summit on open source software to really think about what role should government play, how can we support the ecosystem as we drive towards more security in open source software. From that, we were tasked by the national cyber director to do a look at what we could we do as a federal government. How do we get our house in order? How do we be supportive of this movement? Because if there's one thing that's true about the open source software ecosystem is that they need to drive this forward, right? They need to be in the driver's seat on changing the way the ecosystem um, organizes itself around security. And so through that study, we found a few things, right? There are some challenges with the incentive structure for developers and getting them to prioritize security. There are challenges for um, the organizations that disseminate open source software and getting them to promulgate security tools to the folks that are using their tools. There are funding issues. And then one that really stood out to us and we decided to prioritize was memory unsafety. A lot of the ecosystem, a lot of Both open source software and proprietary software is built on memory unsafe languages. And if you think about large programs, if we migrated from memory unsafe languages to uh, memory safe languages, so memory unsafe languages are like C and C++, very common languages. If we migrated, we could mitigate up to 70% of security vulnerabilities. That was a scalable investment that we thought that the federal government should really prioritize. So you'll see our office, the entire federal ecosystem is really organizing around investing in transitioning to memory safe languages um, because of the scale of how that will change things. Now, not a silver bullet, not the only way we are trying to promote open source software security. We're thinking about funding vehicles, we're thinking about how to support those organizations. There are a host of initiatives and a lot of really important work already going on through National Science Foundation, through CISA, through NIST and other um, federal partners. But that was a place where we saw that we could really make a difference. And if not only we adopted memory safe languages in the federal government, but promoted it with our partners, it could shift the ecosystem.
5: In an earlier session, one of my colleagues called IT modernization the cousin of cybersecurity, and it sounds like you're viewing it that way as well, that the two must go hand in hand Definitely. together, at least when it comes to um, open source software and vulnerabilities. Um, you know, One of the things we've seen that where uh, there's been a lot of discussions today on all of the public-private partnerships, and oftentimes when that's been discussed today, it's been talked about, IN THE CONTEXT OF DIFFERENT CYBER INCIDENTS WE'VE SEEN OVER THE YEARS THAT EITHER PROACTIVELY HAVE PULLED PUBLIC AND PRIVATE GROUPS TOGETHER OR REACTIVELY. AND SO THESE DAYS NOT A WEEK GOES BY THAT WE DON'T HEAR ABOUT SOME SORT OF VULNERABILITY THAT'S EITHER AFFECTING GOVERNMENT OR CRITICAL INFRASTRUCTURE. AND WE SEE THIS DEFINITELY IN LOTS OF THE LEGACY SOFTWARE LIKE WHAT YOU'RE TALKING ABOUT. WE SEE SOFTWARE SUPPLY CHAIN ATTACKS LIKE WITH A RECENT um, VOIP provider that's been talked about a lot today. And so one of the things that you hinted at a moment ago with this need to modernize and update is perhaps one prong of the strategy or, or, or under one of the pillars of the strategy, one of the components which calls for the federal government to use its power of procurement to help influence cybersecurity change and effectuate cybersecurity change. So for all those out there in the audience today that either have purchasing power or could influence purchasing power, what would be your message there in terms of the role they can play in enhancing cybersecurity?
4: Yeah, I mean, what I'd like to see from federal partners who have purchasing power or who can influence it are organizing around incidents like this. So the the incident that we're talking about was a great example of private sector and public sector coming together to respond to an incident. But had things gone the way they were intended this could have gone a little bit differently and there's a lot of opportunity to learn from this supply chain tech to understand how we could build more resilience into our procurement processes how our procurement teams could be agents for identifying issues how we can make sure there's information flowing across the organization such that we can flag a lot sooner when there is an ent- like an, an organization that is the source of a vulnerability that has been identified in your ecosystem and the, the federal government and private sector partners too have a big infrastructure, and we often have trouble identifying what we have within our environment. And so procurement teams are really going to be an important part of identifying where there are vulnerabilities, where there are gaps. And so becoming more integrated into cybersecurity conversations, prioritizing that, and how you evaluate the organizations that you partner with and that you you procure from is gonna be really important.
5: It it seems like when you look at the strategy and you look at either the the emphasis on those best suited to fix vulnerabilities to fix them, or this notion that the end user shouldn't bear all of the costs Mm -hmm. of cyber attacks and cyber vulnerabilities, that whether or not the federal government is using some sort of vulnerable software should be factored in as far as the cost of continuing to use that same software year after year. Is that a way in which you guys are looking at this?
4: Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, thinking about um, the life cycle of the products that you have, how you are um, evaluating that, who has access to that information, how often you are revisiting that is also really important. Mm -hmm.
5: And uh, another thing that strikes me when thinking about this topic of vulnerabilities, as well as the the broader call for um, those with the power to do something to do something is, The world in which we see it is one in which there are cybersecurity haves and have nots. So you have those who certainly have resources and who are able to either set up their own cybersecurity program that can be very effective or have the resources to procure cybersecurity technologies directly. But then there's a whole group of cybersecurity have nots who have traditionally not had the resources, such as certain critical infrastructure entities. And today, though, we see this ecosystem in which you have managed service providers who can bring sophisticated solutions to those who might not have the budget to set up their own program. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you're thinking about too when you think about how to tackle the problems either in critical infrastructure or even with smaller government agencies that might be less well-resourced?
4: Definitely, holistically across the board, not just for government, but across the ecosystem. I mean, that shift is a tough one, right? Um, Moving from the burden being on small players, local governments, that is a mindset shift that we want to incentivize and is a really urgently important priority for us. And so as we think about how to push managed server partners, uh, magic service providers, cloud security providers, how do we get them to take ownership of providing those services to their clients from the beginning? How do we get those smaller entities even aware that they should demand that from their providers, right? Be able to articulate what their needs are, particularly in an environment where they may not even have any cybersecurity expertise on staff. And so we're thinking about how do we not only um, equip these larger companies to take on that burden, but how do we support these smaller players in being able to advocate for themselves and to articulate what their needs are. And managed service providers is a great way to do that. Shared um, professional resources is a great way to do that. And we're thinking about how to promulgate that more fully. Actually, earlier today, I was on a panel about philanthropy and the role of philanthropy in helping to Um, build up nonprofit organizations and get them the intellectual resources the cybersecurity expertise that they need to be able to articulate what their needs are to identify the appropriate service providers and so there's a lot of working going on across across the ecosystem to equip and arm small providers to be able to advocate for themselves and as we shift that burden
5: so speaking of that it sounds like you're thinking outside the box in terms of non-traditional means to ensure that folks are able to get the cybersecurity resources they need. I understand that you are working on the cybersecurity workforce strategy. Today, during many of the sessions, uh, we heard a lot of private sector as well as government folks talk about the workforce shortage and the need to not only attract talent, but also retain talent. And to also ensure that um, talent is going to all the places that need that cybersecurity talent. Mm -hmm. So can you give me, um, give us all a bit of a preview of what you're thinking about, and especially how does that tie into your thinking about
4: supply chain security? Yeah, I mean, I think what your last question hinted at is that While we work towards shifting the burden from the small players to the big players, there will be residual risk on the smaller players. And One of the things we're thinking about in this workforce strategy is how do we equip every American to be able to function in our digital society? how do we think about the cyber skills that are necessary for them to be able to leverage technology to its fullest potential, but also make sure that they're protecting their families. And so we're thinking about cyber skills, some foundational cyber skills that everyone should have, similar to being able to read and write and do arithmetic. So how do we make sure we're equipping everyone with that? And that level of access and awareness, that ability to understand how technology shows up in your life and what the implications are for your use of it and how it affects your privacy and security, is the foundation for being able to open the aperture on opportunity to enter into the cyber workforce. So then how do we invest in a cyber education and training apparatus that really prepares a workforce that not only can meet the challenges of today, but meets the dynamism of the environment that we seek to create. Because if the national cyber Cyber cybersecurity strategy is successful, and it will be, um, the changes that we will see in the technical environment and technological environment will mean that we need different things from our workforce, right? That we'll need more folks who can focus on AI and maybe less focused on um, legacy systems, right? And so, how do we make sure that we are creating an education and training environment that allows for that kind of agility and to shift with the environment? And then, how do we strengthen our workforce the national workforce, the federal workforce? How do we create Connective tissue in that? How do we understand the changes that have come through in the environment today? Not a lot of the, the newer generations want to ride a ladder up at one organization. They want to move laterally, they want to move between industries, they want to try something completely new. And this multidisciplinary space that is cyber is cybersecurity allows for you to leverage a number of different skills in a number of different sectors, and you're richer for having moved between them. And so we wanna make sure that, that is clear as well. So the strategy will really focus on those foundational cyber skills, how do we build ecosystems at local levels, regional levels, national levels, whatever is most appropriate to facilitate that education and training apparatus and feed the workforce. Um, and, and really, how are we doing so in a way that leverages the diversity, the rich diversity of our nation, get folks from rural environments, get people of color, get more women into the um, industry, and feed all of those parts of the, of the workforce dynamic.
0: You can watch more highlights from the CrowdStrike Government Summit at the dailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is also a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll talk to you again Thursday afternoon. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.